When I was in school, there was nobody doing this kind of career coaching stuff. That didn't exist. And I think for the for the career coaching, too many people don't have a way to get objective feedback on what they've, you know, how their stuff is coming across or how their thinking might be getting in their way. And just having somebody that you trust to be able to show you some alternatives can make a huge difference. And I love being able to work in small groups and, you know, individually uh, with musicians. The small groups are great because then you're hearing from other artists and hearing about how they're managing through challenges. The thing is, my own experience is just one way of doing it. And I try to sample and, you know, view from a lot of different sources to, to give people a, a set of tools to experiment with. Because it, whatever works for one person is not necessarily the right thing for the next. Welcome everybody to the Baking, Baking Notes, Notes. This is a great one. It finally happened. We brought on the Angela Beeching. Dude, we've been talking about her for years, man. Years. We've spoken into existence. And the cool thing about Angela Beeching is she's a noted career arts specialist. She's the author of Beyond Talent, Creating a Successful Career in Music. And it's funny, like, it's, I have it right here. If you're watching the video, I'm holding up the, the book. Uh, I have the second edition. We read it in my entrepreneur class. Um, it was surreal actually meeting the author. And it was, it was so, you're going to love this conversation. She was once the director of career services at New England Conservatory and then moved on to also work with the Manhattan School of Music Center for Music Entrepreneurship and Jacobs School of Music as well. She is a grade A badass. And her most important client, me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been following Angela Beach for years, just like many of you who've gone off into music school. You've read her book. You've been hearing about her. She really paved the way. She was one of the first career service directors going out there and making entrepreneurship a thing for musicians, preparing you uh, for the 21st century. She's the OG. I'm so happy to have had her in here. She's changed my life. I went in and was part of one of her power groups and got to see and witness her mentorship firsthand. There's so many uh, incredible insights, fun little conversations and stories in this one. We're so so excited to bring in the real deal, Angela Beeching. And as always, please support the pod. Mm-hmm. Subscribe, support. download, and review. Leave us a review, y'all. We want to know how we doing if you're fucking with us. We want to fuck with you. And we actually want to like, uh, you know, share some of our favorite reviews on the show. So hit us up. If you want to speak to us in between the episodes, join our discord. If you want to give us money in between the episodes, join our Patreon. And now we video these. Check us out on YouTube. We got little clips. We're not, we're not on TikTok. We're everywhere. You cannot avoid us. You can't escape. <laughs> Anyway, let's get to this wonderful conversation with the one, the only, Angela Beach. Angela Beach. Angela Beach, and welcome to the Faking Notes podcast. Woo! I'm so happy to be here. Ah, uh, we're so happy to have you here. So, uh, I've been talking about you on this podcast for years. Uh, you True. as a, a mentor of mine, and uh, I kept referencing you so much before we spoke, before the Power Group program, and during and after, and then finally Daniel and Drew are like, "Just bring her Just on. Bring Let's her go on, straight bro. to the source. <laughs> Come on." Yeah. <laughs> you didn't think this was real? Yeah. 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 Person? I didn't believe him. I didn't believe him. Honestly. <laughs> Who is this beacon of knowledge? Oh uh, well. <laughs> It's exciting to to finally uh, have you on because you've been 
uh, one of the driving forces for how we've changed and we've grown on the pod. And what really uh, excites me the most about this is that you've been really paving the way for podcasts like these, opportunities to talk about entrepreneurship, growth, things outside of music, purpose, battling you know the the mental game that goes into these crazy lives we we have as artists and you've been doing this for so long and it's kind of like nice to see you're still out there pushing still growing changing we've got multiple books multiple editions now and uh it's been so nice to have you uh leading the charge in this field so thank you thank you that's so nice Dr. Beeching, I just wanted to say, like, I really appreciate so much of the knowledge you've shared over the years. Like, uh, I went to the Juilliard School for my master's degree. And in my entrepreneurship class, I was assigned to read your book. And I learned so many valuable lessons. It, it was interesting because reading something and then experiencing it in real life are two different things. Yeah. Right. So I read a lot of what uh, it takes to be like a freelancer and what it takes to be an entrepreneur while I was in school, not making money doing what I did. I was playing for pizza. But then as I like have gone through my career, I've like encountered situations where the practical advice that you put in the book, uh, Beyond Talent, I have the second edition. They actively came and hit me in the face. I was like, this is what Dr. Beeching was talking about. <laughs> this is it. So I wanted to open up with a question. Um, and I, I don't know if this is hardball or not, and I apologize if it is. Oh, go on for a, it. On a scale from one to 10, one being completely optional and 10 being absolutely required no matter what, in your opinion, how important is entrepreneurship to the modern musician? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? Uh, you know what's so tough about that, Drew? That the word entrepreneurship has so much baggage around it that mm. you know people have their whole ideas around that. But if we scraped it down to this idea of that you can have a vision of something that's going to make a difference in the world and you can go for it, if we really just say that's at the root of entrepreneurship then I would say, yeah, this is, this is something that musicians have always had to do. And the times that we're living in now, the crazy times that we're living in now, it can't be more true than, <laughs> than, than that. I mean, it's really, you know, it's really the essence. Um, and, and please don't call me doctor because I'm not wearing my stethoscope today. So, uh. <laughs> uh. yeah, of course, no, of I, course, of course. Yeah, that, that, I, in a way, I wish we could do without the word entrepreneurship. I wish we could talk about this stuff without having to think, oh, the business side is over here or marketing is over here because it just gums up the work. It, it makes people feel, I don't know, disconnected um, from the art. But in reality, we're just talking about how can we connect with an audience? How can we invite them into this experience? So I, I think that the more we can just realize there's something very human at the core of all of this, I don't know. I'm always trying to get people to to connect the dots to to feel one. I'm so used to musicians <laughs> feeling like, oh, I I need to have three different websites because I have like three different income streams. And I'm thinking, no, you're <laughs> one person. You're one person. I actually wanted to ask a follow up question to that um, because in my experience, like in the little bit of consulting that I do with people, like my expertise is in social media. Mm -hmm. and, and marketing. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was marketing and newsworthiness. Yeah. But before I hop into that, I just wanted to ask you, could you expand a little deeper on like, you know, that little example you gave, like if you have so many different things to offer the world, yeah. there are people that want to silo those and categorize them and keep them separate from their class of musician. But why is it important to incorporate the many different facets of who you are as an artist into that one being. Why is that important? Okay, I just I just got off the phone or on a, a Zoom call with a 
with another client who shall remain nameless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No names. You know, right, right. No, 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 no. I'll just say <laughs> it's 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 like a it's one of those situations where um, you know, we're talking about their promotional material. And this is just so typical that that people are hiding behind their credentials and their understanding of what the world wants them, you know, how how they should present themselves. That all gets in the way of actually them discovering who am I? Like what is it that I want to to give out there? And when you think about the kind of bios or the kind of social media stuff that does interest you, it is always when someone gets more human. Like it's always where someone reveals something about themselves that maybe takes a little bit of vulnerability, but you can tell when someone is being candid, when it's the real stuff. So I don't think it's so much about, do we have to list all these different income streams or products we offer? It's more like, can you articulate what's connecting all of that stuff? And can you tell us what's driving you to do all all of this? Because that's that's when we, we'd absolutely go along for the ride, because now we're getting like the inside scoop on what what fuels your creativity. And this is something that I just love following your work and why I wanted to, to come to you for help. And it's just definitely impacted my life in immeasurable ways is that when I first heard of you and I also read the book in undergrad, the music career class was uh, like a required class. And then it wound up being one of the most useful and most interesting. And, <laughs> and uh, what it led me at least to do is to, of course, follow your blog. You're giving out information regularly and openly. And we'll, we'll talk about that specifically as a business strategy later. The thing that really stuck out to me, and I remember getting mentioned at in the Juilliard Career Services area, was they're like, oh, Angela Beachy, she's kind of like the music business therapy coach or whatever. <laughs> she's like, she's kind of like your life. She's like therapist slash business uh, advisor. And I think some of that rings true in that when someone would go get a business coach, the assumption would be like, okay, we're going to read through the website. You know, you need to open up this account. Here's a couple PDFs and a PowerPoint on how to sell and then go on your merry way. But in the initial meetings with you and through your writing, it's about who you are. It's about your drive. What is your North Star? Why do you want to do this? Should you do this? Here's how you can do it. Also, let's wordsmith that bio. Let's let's make this not a giant, uh, painful list of things that are uninteresting. Like, here's your colors. Like, so I really like how you kind of opened up, just like you did in this podcast, that everything is kind of you. And all of it kind of goes into what makes you your career and you yourself as an artist. Yes, there's the website. Yes, there's the nitty gritty. Yes, you should charge more for this service. Um, but also, why are you doing this? <laughs> and yeah. you, you focus in on those elements. Uh, could you just, I guess, talk to us a little bit uh, about that wholesome approach? Because it, it's a lot. It's all encompassing. Like, were you? was it always like that? Did you start mm. off nitty gritty and then go into this kind of more artistic huh. front or were you always on the artist front and then kind of grew into expanding into the more nitty gritty oh. bio side of things? Yeah. I, it's been so long. I don't really know, but I, uh, the thing that happened that got me started with this was I was in um, grad school at Stony Brook. I was studying with Tim Eddy and I complained to the department I always say when I'm talking to students, you know, anybody else a complainer here? Because, you know, it's <laughs> like a thing. It's a thing. You can't help it. But I complained because we didn't have a place to go or resources to find out how to write grants or apply for teaching jobs or, you know, how to book your own tours. Like that stuff didn't exist at that time. So the department chair said to me, write a proposal. And I didn't even know what a proposal was, but I wrote something up. I handed it in. I thought, okay, that makes something happen. And they turned around and said, we're going to make this your teaching assistantship. You get to start this thing. 
So, you know, they got cheap labor and I was really motivated. And I, <laughs> I, I wasn't just doing this for me. I was doing it for the other people in the department too. Like I thought, oh, this is something practical. We can get this stuff done. And it was rewarding in a way that uh, the practice room isn't so rewarding. <laughs> so, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, but I was doing that, you know, while I was, you know, got the master's and then the doctorate at, because I wanted a college teaching job in cello. That was, that was my thing. So this was just like a means to an end. I wanted to find out how to write grants and I ended up studying in Paris and, you know, all that good stuff. I never thought that was going to come around and bite me in the butt. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I ended up teaching in, at a state university in California and then in way upstate New York and I got burnt out. And this thing that I thought was, you know, I, I should be happy. This was the kind of job that I always wanted. And here I was really miserable and I got super, super depressed. And I, I just was, it, it was bewildering because this was the thing that I wanted. So who am I if I'm not going to be a cellist and, you know, have a university position? So um, I moved eventually back to Boston where I'd gone to school for a while and um, a job opened up in the conservatory running the career center. And at that time, people didn't have that kind of experience, but I'd run that thing as a as a grad student. So they hired me and I thought, oh, I'll just do this for a couple of years, you know, till I figure <laughs> out what I should be doing with my life. Um, but I found that I really loved the work because I'm, I can't help it. It is fascinating to me, like how to help a person navigate through the maze because it, yeah, there is the concrete career stuff, but the things that block us from moving forward are always way more interesting. You know, there's, there's all the motivation stuff and there's all the self-doubt. It, it just goes with the territory and with each person, it's a, you know, it's a new adventure. So I really do love this work. And I ended up writing the book because there wasn't anything that was covering what I needed to teach and you know, the coaching. And so that's how that came about. I just never expected this and it was sort of weird to be all those years teaching entrepreneurship and having, you know, sideline hustles, but I'd never mm -hmm. been out on my own totally uh, until I eventually did. And wow, that's a big difference. So, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I, in a way, I wished I'd done it way, way earlier. Um, but I wasn't ready. You know, you, you can only do it when you're, when you're really there. So it's, yeah, it's a, that's a really long answer, but I think, I think initially I thought, you know, there's answers that people aren't getting. And I think I took that same approach, whether it's the concrete stuff of how to write a bio or to figure out what's in your way that you could past. It's so funny how uh, this conversation is unfolding because that, that was one of my questions is like, is there like a common roadblock that you see that mm. people deal with? Have you witnessed any of your clients just be unable to, you know, move past a certain roadblock? Like what would huh. your advice be to, yeah. or is there anything in common or is everybody person, like you said, like a whole new adventure that's unique and different? Huh? Well, it's very common for people to have a real aversion to marketing themselves, right? You know, um, and to have all kinds of squirrely ideas, you know, that go along with that, whether it's the imposter syndrome or, or whatever. That stuff is very common and also really harsh, um, negative self-talk. Mm. I mean, partly it's the way we're taught, we're brainwashed in music school to focus on what's not working, right? And um, mm -hmm. often don't have any appreciation for what is working. And it's not that we have, you know, dragons for teachers, but it's the, it is kind of the culture of the institutions that perpetuate that perfectionism and kind of that we're never, you know, you'll never be satisfied but part of that is we're reaching for something beyond, and that makes sense. But there's an unhealthy 
aspect to this. And I, I always find this so fascinating because someone can be graduated, like be gone 10 years from school, and they're still in this kind of student mindset, that ruthless thing, and also feeling like they need to be chasing validation from an external source. It's just very, very common. So the way it plays out for individuals, of course, is is specific and subjective and what tools will work for any one person. That's what's different from one to the next. But that soup of fear and in a way, lack of self-trust, that seeking validation, all that stuff just is part of the territory. I wanted to ask you before, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on your toes, Trevor. Go for it. I've been doing this, but this is such a fascinating conversation that I've had with myself um, Hmm. in my journal. We have a lot of like uh, recent college grads or soon to be college grads that listen to this podcast. And like, what would you say to them that that like if their specific hangup is the is seeking external validation? Yeah, like winning a competition. Like, what would you say to them? Yeah. Well. This may seem like an odd place to start, but I I often suggest people get a small notebook and they keep it next to their bedside. And at the end of every day that they write down things that happened during the day that they noticed that they appreciated, like, you know, I'm glad to be alive. It might've been a phrase that they heard somebody else play, but it also might've been a bird that they saw outside or the or whatever. And I, I think it's so common that people get into this grind, that they're completely divorced from this feeling of being more fully alive. So in a way, you have to kind of open people up to that sense of, of gratitude to see that life is a lot bigger than this one stinking competition that's coming up, right? You know, it's a, you know that that kind of pressure. The other tactic that I and that this was just with a client who um, had an orchestral audition, and she didn't advance, but she did a lot better than the than previous times. And one of the things that we talked about as she was working towards the the date of the audition is it's so common to get in like this blinders mode where there's nothing else except for that date as if life doesn't go on past that. (laughs) So part of it was just making sure, okay, what are you doing with these other projects? Because, you know, they're still there and you're not going to just, you know, cave whatever happens. So that's part of it. Like trying to see, even when we have an important audition or a concert to see that this is part of a, like a trail of crumbs, right? It's the, it's the thing that we're, we're in it for the long haul and mm-hmm. any one competition, if you, if you bomb it or if you do great, that's not, there's no such thing as the make or break thing. I would say that's maybe the biggest problem that, People have this fantasy, we, we all do, have this fantasy of, oh, the one break, and then everything is going to be, <laughs> you know, coming up roses, you know, like that, like, I will be on easy street. That's the, that's the fantasy. But, well, don't, don't, don't want to be a downer here, but suffering is part of life, right? Heck can, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, Let's go. Yeah, you can win a big job and that stuff is still going to be there and you're still going to have to work your your butt off and it's just um and there's going to be disappointments and there's going to be fear like there's no there's no like getting off easy. And I think that that I see that mentality so often that a lot of musicians will work really hard up until you know this the special point and then they're just like crash because they don't they mm. don't have a like they don't have an ongoing commitment like this is my like a spiritual practice like you know i meditate every morning right like whatever that is because that commitment to the ongoing work that's the real thing 
It's beautiful. And it, it <laughs> puts a nice little bow on some of the things we've been talking about for the past three years. Because if we think about it, it's so simple. Ah, yes. If I just do things consistently, I'll, I'll get better. And yet it's the hardest thing. Uh, and, and everyone knows that they can do this. We're in this unique period of time where we have, of course, more information, way too much information, more information than we've ever had before. And uh, it turns out it wasn't a lack of information that was holding right. us back in certain areas. It was yeah. a lack of how to assess this information, what to do with it, and simply like the discipline to put that information uh, into action. Like one of Drew's phrases he brings up, uh, he's brought up a bunch in the past is like discipline equals freedom. And there's so mm. many other great, there's so many other great phrases of things about it. And yet it is still really hard to just go yeah. out and tackle the big scary thing to slay yeah. the dragon. Oh, I love these, um, these two therapists in LA. I recommend their books all the time. Um, this is Phil Stutz and um, uh, Barry Michaels. And they wrote a book called The Tools and then a follow-up called Coming Alive. And I recommend them all the time because they're they're just amazing. Anyway, they, they deal with a lot of creative people in Hollywood, all these like A-list writers, directors, actors, um, all people with all kinds of creative challenges. So it's really good stuff for musicians. But they have this concept called death cookies. <laughs> and if you're a skier, which I'm not, but I'm told, it's it's when you hit those like icy chunks, you know, going fast downhill and they can like, you know, they can derail you or whatever, but it's like a it's this exhilarating thing, like ah, you know, so they call it eating a death cookie when you when you smash through one of these things. And that's the approach that the tools guys and and I I swear by this too that you can take towards doing the scary thing that you need to do the next morning, right? There's the email that you've been avoiding tackling. There's the, you know, practice for a certain piece that you've been avoiding, whatever it is, but that's eating a death cookie. When you uh, know for sure, this is the one thing that I have been avoiding um, it's the one thing that really needs to be done for me to move forward on this. And God damn it, I'm going to do it. So that's that feeling like I just love it at the end of the day when I'm thinking over the day. And I said, you know, maybe a bunch of things went like crap, but I ate that death cookie. <laughs> okay, I'll do my taxes. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. Interview's I'll over. I'll, I got to write that piece. I'll itemize everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I want, I want the recipe for those death. Yeah. So. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a Notion page. Sounds good. <laughs> I love that you mentioned the tools because I finally read it, and Drew and I are also referencing another one of your favorites, The War of Art. I finally read it. Oh Steven yeah. Pressfield. Yeah. First, yep. first book and. Um, a couple others that have been popular recently. I think The Obstacle is the Way, Ryan Holiday and the Stoics. So I finally mm. read that. And a lot of them have very, very similar principles, of course, with different language, different terms, different general approaches, but all dealing with that same thing is that there's something yeah. scary out there, but y you need it. You need that to, yeah. to have something to push against, to overcome. And for both... Uh, the resistance with uh, Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art and The Obstacle is the Way, I think they both kind of reference it in that with that obstacle becoming the way, that the thing that's holding you back is exactly, it's the, it's almost becomes the North Star. It's what yeah. you need to accomplish. And that if yeah. you keep going against it, if you keep overcoming it, you start to crave the thrill of overcoming yeah. the obstacle. You start to want to have the resistance. Yeah, that that's yeah. the way that the tools guys talk about it as uh, an indicator towards what you most need to do. But also, if you think about why do we have resistance, why do we have all this negative stuff? And it's because in the pushing through it, that's where you grow. That's how you learn. That's how you develop as an artist. So in a way, we you know we could think, oh, it, it, I wish things were easier. Like, why are things so tough? But they're tough for a reason. 
I just always find that comforting. I mean, it's a it's a choice to look at the world that way, but I think it beats seeing it um, instead as random, you know, evil or random challenges or or you know, why me? Like, right? That just doesn't that mm-hmm. doesn't help. One way that this is manifested in my life is uh, learning about how to really handle my money. Hmm. Like, like every time I swipe my card, I like go into a database and I write down the purchase, why I did it, all these different things. It makes spending money so much harder. But I've noticed that as I keep track of all of my expenses, like I'm looking at, I, I have to look at what I'm spending money on. I have to know whether I'm investing my money in things that I need or if I'm wasting it. And then it teaches me to maybe address my emotional issues. Hmm. It's been so difficult. Now that I have a handle Hmm. on that, the next thing for me personally is like figuring out, okay, how do I incorporate? Should I incorporate? What are the tax laws? And so I'm going full adult over the past couple of years (laughs) and it doesn't get better. Like it's wow. still hard, <laughs> you know, learning new things. Yeah. And so I love that what you said about, uh, you know, really finding that resistance and knowing that that's where you push through that because that's where you need to grow. Yeah. It makes me feel a little bit better. One yeah. thing that I've also noticed is like exercising, like mm-hmm. moving your body. You don't want to do that, especially like <laughs> when you get on. I would rather just sit in here and watch Real Housewives and eat some cookies, right? <laughs> but I've been I've been going through working out and not working out, and I realize the more I do it, the more I do crave it. So it's interesting that, that it works physically yeah. and creatively too. I, I love that. Um, yeah, that energy thing is so is so important. I I mean, uh, it's a good day when I can go for three walks. Um, but most <laughs> most days it's one or two, but yeah, that the that thing about going outside. I mean, walking is my thing. I don't run or any of that. Mm-hmm. But I immediately feel better because that whole like grateful flow stuff just starts happening. I just that whole thing about energizing yourself is so good. And and there was something about um, the resistance. I just wanted to bring this up. Pema Chodron. Was talking about the comfort zone. This is what I do during COVID. I sign up for a course on dying. Yeah. Yeah. This is Kevin Coden had this like that, you know, fantastic course, this retreat thing. It was it was <laughs> it was really intense, but really good. Um, anyway, she talks about the comfort zone in in this and in a way that I'd never heard anybody talk about it. So she has three concentric circles, and the inner one is your comfort zone, where of course is where we all imagine that the good life is just to stay there. And the next circle outside of that is where she calls the challenge and the learning zone. So this is what happens when we get outside the comfort zone. There is this band of where we want to be. But beyond that is another band where it's like too far, right? It's like the 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 danger zone. Like yeah. and and I had never I'd never heard anybody distinguish this because for me, so often getting outside your comfort zone, you think you're going to be in the danger zone when you actually just are probably in a place for learning. Mm -hmm. And I I found that really comforting as well. So, and you didn't have to sign up for the death course to get it. What I think is also really enlightening and fascinating and really telling is you've been a mentor and an advisor for years, but you yourself are still going out and having mentors of your own, taking courses from, from all others. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's a weird classical thing to where school, 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 you know, private lessons here, get the grad degree, graduate, and I am now a master. I understand yeah. everything. No more lessons. But yet all the great athletes, 
they'll be number one in the world and they still have a swing coach. Yeah. yeah. They still have all these advisors. And yet in music, it kind of disappears. What is mentorship for you? Wow. When I was in school, there was nobody doing this kind of career coaching stuff that didn't exist. But what you said about once people graduate, and I see this in my clients, what I see is a resistance for them even to get musical mentorship. And Mm -hmm. that to me is such a shame. Uh, I can understand that they don't want to go back into that student mentality and where you sort of think your teacher is God and they're going to be like make or break or whatever. And you have to negotiate a different way of getting the kind of feedback and the inspiration and the um, suggestions from this person. So I think that that's, that's this distinction of like, how am I going to approach this? And I think for the, for the career coaching, too many people don't have a way to get objective feedback on what they've, you know, how their stuff is coming across or how their thinking might be getting in their way. And just having somebody that you trust to be able to show you some alternatives can make a huge difference. And I love being able to work in small groups and, you know, individually uh, with musicians. The small groups are great because then you're hearing from other artists and hearing about how they're managing through challenges. So to me, it's a really good thing. The The thing is, my own experience is just one way of doing it. And I try to sample and, you know, view from a lot of different sources to to give people a, a set of tools to experiment with. Because it whatever works for one person is not necessarily the right thing for the next. Um, I don't know if that answered the question, Trevor. It's it certainly helps. And I <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, and I think shifting this conversation into the more like technical side of things on that okay. business front. I was listening to some of your previous uh, interviews, and it was talking about the recommendation to do backwards planning, and mm-hmm. that most of the musician's life and career, and probably almost everyone's, is very project based. And how yeah. are we going to conquer a project? You know, start from the end result and work backwards. And uh, I think the interviewee, I think it was the Clarinet podcast, but it was something along the lines of, well, what happens if we don't even know what the project is or what the end result is? Hmm. And then that's where mentorship comes in, is someone who who can help you kind of plot out that backwards facing project planning and kind of be the outside influence and voice. The thing we love having the mentors from school but without all that <laughs> kind of unnecessary baggage that school yeah. brings brings with it. I think sometimes people are very clear about what that um what that goal is that they want to attain, but they can't think about what those intermediate benchmarking po- points would actually be because they're so in love with that final you know, huge project that they want to create that they can't imagine <clears throat> that the start of this might be really kind of small <laughs> um, and and yeah. and hard, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of it. Like I think sometimes just talking it through. I I always say you know somebody is real with the project idea when they've written it down and they've actually made a budget. You know, like they, they've thought through what mm-hmm. what is this thing actually going to cost me in terms of money, time, and they've got a sense of how to get that started. I love the way you described the budget because that's something like, at least musicians and artists, we just don't like thinking about money. I know I don't. I like thinking about money like when it comes to providing services and, and, and investing and stuff. When it comes to like me actually spending money for lessons or personal development with music, it's hard for me to part from it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, let's say on the topic of mentorship for just one more second, like, how would you maybe create a mental model to justify price? Or like, if you're looking for a mentor, like, how would you think about like, if this is for me, being able to 
paying for mentorship or paying Ah. for a coach or things like that. Like as a student or as like a professional, how can you assign value to that in your head? Hmm. Well, I think it's a trap for people to be thinking short term, right? It's Mm. a, it's a thing that um, most musicians and most freelancers are thinking in terms of, you know, this month, this quarter, you know, yep. whatever. Yep. Um, yep. And so it's it's hard <laughs> to justify an expense, especially if it's going to be an ongoing expense, mm-hmm. um, with uncertain, right, results. Because the results are going to depend on how much you invest in doing the work to yep. actually make the change, yep. right? So, for instance, let's say someone knows that what they've been doing in terms of marketing themselves, you know, is not, is is not working. And let's say they have a private studio and they need to build up um, their students and, you know, be getting more freelance work. So the thought of spending money when they, when they're already, you know, in not such a great shape that's a problem. But then they were thinking, okay, but this might be the incentive and the expertise that I need to add, you know, five more students to my studio, you know, seven more students. And it's, it's not a pie in the sky thing, but you have to figure out, okay, at some point I need to be thinking longer term. And that thing about that short term thinking, here's the problem with it. We, we're in that kind of scarcity mentality and thinking even time is just right now, right now, right now. But being able to imagine that future that they that you really want to be growing into, that has to be a picture that you can really see. And what what would it involve? Like for you to feel financially comfortable, how many students do you need? What should you be charging or what might you be able to charge, right? Just to, just to really change that picture in terms of do I feel financially stable and am I growing artistically? I love this. Because I can speak as someone who has invested in coaching (laughs) and can directly say that as a long-term thing, it has certainly, certainly paid itself back off. Uh, Like during the course of of being a part of uh, your power group. I got a, a promotion and started two businesses and I did a film. <laughs> like a lot happened during that, um, that just like with, with your life, your backstory, I would never had expected, but I can directly point back to the, the learnings and just having that mentorship and, and oversight as a way to go about it. And one of our good friends who we've had on the pod, uh, John Hong, uh, he does a lot of the ghostwriting bio, good friend. And he always talked about, mentorship and coaching for for years he it's it's a big part of his backstory going out and getting i, can't, I don't know if it was a life and it was a life coach. coach it was a life, a life coach, coach. yeah wow very expensive before he could certainly afford it and it changed his life he yeah. went it, it and so i always thought about that and i was like it, it's not a coincidence that when i start finally learning about money being like, wait, I need to take this seriously. I need to figure this situation out because it's been the same for too many years. What do I got to do? We're talking about on the podcast all the time before that. I was like, I need to learn this stuff. Drew is, Drew's teaching me how to do these things. And a big part of that was investing right at that same yeah. time, starting the power group, because there's more to investing than just buying a stock or putting in some fun. There's the investing in the self. And we'd been stingy, not, I've not been taking lessons. You know, I might buy some software or whatever, but that resistance that Drew and I are always thinking about of, I guess, trusting ourselves to invest in ourselves. And so I finally, the first big plunge was in this power group and I'm like, it's going to pay for itself. And, uh, it did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I could, I could say it did. And so at least to me, like my mental model of what I was thinking mm-hmm. about, uh, at least with mentorship is time. It's our most valuable resource. We don't know how much we have of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, every second spent is one we will never get back. And so I look at 
uh, mentorship and even the things we talk about on this podcast as it's a way to save time, investing your time, you get time mm -hmm. back. So yes, this might be a lot of money. And even before like financial stability to go out and invest in that coaching, does this get me two years or three years sooner to the same goal? Or maybe it helps me, you know, prevent going down like less useful paths or something. So I just saw it as a great uh, investment for my time to kind of let's get things on track. Like let's let's get there sooner. And suddenly that dollar figure seems small if you uh -huh. could have a better life three years earlier. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So so Drew, what? What got you so fascinated with money as the as a thing that you were really gonna, you know, the death cookie that you really wanted to eat? <laughs> that's such a that's such a wonderful question. Thank you for asking me. Um, you know, one of my goals in life, ever since I went to my undergraduate studies, was to be an entrepreneurial musician that got to do a lot of different types of things but didn't have to supplicate for donors to donors mm -hmm. for money. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed there th that the, uh, the program director uh, of my undergrad often spent time away from his instrument, away from his family off courting donors to pay for the school was off arguing with, you know, the board to keep accreditation by changing the curriculum and adding business and entrepreneurship to the conservatory model and making yeah. sure that our degrees meant something because there's so much pushback. I didn't want to have to deal with all the red tape. And yeah. I realized I had huh. to be my own donor. So if I'm yeah. going to be my own donor, how do systems like the university system work? How do their endowments work? How come they, yeah, they make us huh. pay all this money, but their money is making money. How do I do that for me? <laughs> what, what is what is money? Is is money real? Oh, it's not real. Money's fake. Wait, it's infinitely abundant then? That means I can have access to it. Whereas growing up, I had learned that it was scarce and you had to fight and you had to steal and cheat just to get a little bit of it. That's not true. Mm. Oh, I can create value and can create money so I can take care of a family one day. So those sorts of things were going through my mind as I was graduating. And so when the pandemic kicked in, I was like, oh, I have no work. This is real. It's either, you know, forego my desire to be a father um, in the future and support a family and support my existing family, my mom and my brother in the future with my art, which I will not compromise on. Um, and I was like, okay, I have to work smarter, not harder. And so that kind of led mm -hmm. to me reading more books like uh, Brittany Stanny's Overcoming Under Earning. Oh, God. Yeah, I love that mm -hmm. book. I've recommended this Let's to so many people. It. And then I found one of my <laughs> clients has made like, uh, she's in a um, a networking group where they go like a chapter at a time in the book together. Yeah. yeah. I it was really wow. good. You know, my um, there were two books that my business coach recommended Please. to me at one point at the same time. So it was, mm. yeah, Barbara Stanny's um, Overcoming Under Barbara. Earning. And the other book was, um, what is his name? Robert Holden's. Um, unlovability. Interesting. And, I've never and heard I of this. thought I thought to myself, unlovability. I said, ew, I don't want to read this book. <laughs> you, know, you know, but the, the thing is, overcoming under earning is about feeling unworthy. And that's what the unlovability book is also about. And it was like this one-two punch to the gut. You know, it's a, it's that whole stinginess thing about not investing in yourself, not believing that you're worth it. It's uh, that's a lot to take in, but I think that there's there's so much value in trying to confront the, you know, the hangups that we have about money. Everybody has a money story, right? There's there's stuff in our way, and I was in this uh, year long money mindset program. That was really good, but it, you know, what I saw was like how many layers that we have, like from what we've, what 
the messages that we got from our parents and not anything that they inflicted on us, um, you know, in any kind of, you know, uh, harmful way that it wasn't purposeful, but, you know, my parents were depression era folks. So they're really this like poverty mindset. Mm-hmm. And and you just mm-hmm. have to think about okay how is that playing out in my life? Mm-hmm. So it's just so weird to find that I would be having like fear around just managing the money. Just this fear would come up, and uh, is including having financial planners tell me you're not going to be a bag lady. You're not going to be a bag lady. You're fine. Yeah. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> and like so, you know, in the back of my mind, it's like still there. So it's it's really something when you're looking at stuff, whether it's a large investment or what feels mm-hmm. like a risk, mm-hmm. right? What comes up just to even notice where you feel it in your body, what's going on, what are the associations? Because that's the first step to changing the, the mindset stuff that's in our way. Another thing that I learned that I want to add on to that mm-hmm. is what is the cost of not learning about it. Right. What's the cost of not doing something about yeah. it? Yeah. Because if you don't learn about your personal finances, just I love reading. It's just like mm. I'm learning so much just from people's experience. It just helps you like get forward really quickly. One thing that I learned was just like if you don't learn to manage your money, if you're paying somebody 1% to manage your money, first of all, you're trusting them with your money. Second of all, when you've grown that nest egg to a million dollars, $10 million, 1% is a lot of money. That's a crazy Netflix, you know, subscription yeah. to do something that you could, you're capable of doing yourself. Yeah. Right. So you pay in one way or another by not taking on the responsibility and like getting through that pain, you pay for it. Yeah. And it's either an opportunity cost or literal dollars mm-hmm. year by year. And so that kind of like, help me assuage my fears of like getting through it. And I'm so glad I'm moving through it. So I appreciate you asking me that question. Oh yeah. 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 So, so Trevor, I want to ask you in terms of things that you're tackling next, what is on like your project list or what's the death cookie that you're Mm. dealing with? Ooh, good. I, I, (laughs) I I remember when we finished up, at the power group, I had talked about one of the nice realizations was that I had been kind of avoiding doing, I wouldn't say non-musical things, but this interest and the acceptance of doing things like like this podcast and not mm-hmm. being just composer first, got to write music, you know, everything else is is there to feed into still leading first with composition or, you know, the artist's life or whatever. And doing all of this deep looking inward and assessing money and learning about quote unquote, the real world. I I kind of noticed that going into business, learning about business or doing these other things that might not directly have an obvious music link. uh, One is okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And two, that's what I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So instead of finishing up the recording project, like I'm sure a lot of like clients, you know, come to you for finding a new tenure track. My, my objective wound up being by the end was to learn, learn about business, learn about uh, how to make money as an artist, specifically focusing on money. And mm-hmm. you helped us change the business name. It got concertize. And like <laughs> now fast forward mm-hmm. one year, Drew is playing gigs for concertize. Uh, producer Daniel's playing gigs. It's paying money. It's not making me much yet. Uh, or at all, but it's I've been able to make uh, a lot of other people lots of money, and it feels good. And I kind of mm. feel that it's aha. We conquered this very weird thing. We went through tons of challenges, but we didn't uh, let it deter us from uh, the main goal. Mm. But what I did do that was the acceptance of. I think it's okay to not feel guilty about having to write music or having to have some creative project. So I spent the better part of the past year saying no to almost every creative mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. And, but it felt good. It was in a, it was in a good, I kind of, I put up, I was like in six months, I'm going to, I'll check back in and see if I need to extend, extend the lease huh. on, on focusing in on the business career things. Uh, and then, so I extended it. And just now I am working back 
on a piece. I got a dance piece. We got a mm-hmm. premiere coming up uh, very shortly, and it's knocking off that rust. And I have to remember that, you know, like it's it's just fear. It's, yeah. it's just fear. Like why procrastinating? Like you used to do this, and then you know all the little mm-hmm. demons are like, yeah, uh, you know, oh everyone will think it's weird, and but the day keeps getting closer, and it won't be the best. <laughs> it's all the standard procrastination yeah. things of like, what will people think? And then, but, but they don't. They're not. No one's thinking that. <laughs> like, yeah, they're they're just happy to be there, and so it's kind of funny returning after all this kind of accomplishment and still dealing with the same little. Uh, practices. So it was even funny uh, in preparation for this pod. And and like now that I'm back in creative mode, you know, scraping the rust off, blowing off the the dust, because it's like, hey, let's get back in this. You're going to be fine. Like you're, yeah. It's, it's going to be okay. I was watching these um, YouTube videos of the how to end procrastination type things. And one of the funniest ones is now there's so many methods. There's the two minute rule there's the pomodoro technique there's the blocking there's I love the, the pomodoro. And, and there's so yeah. many of these you know one highlight a day this method that i watched a really funny video where someone ranked them <laughs> and so he pulls up like the chart you know and how to like, <laughs> a, a tier list and he says for me this is my tier list and he's like ah you know color code in the calendar that's a c tier but but this one blocking that's an s tier that's the top tier and so it was really funny sitting wow. here listening to all these kind of methods um, that you know we can go these ways to get around get around this uh, fear of just jumping in and doing the work. Yeah. And so I'd huh, been reading all of these, but I and like enacting things here and there. But it was kind of funny to think about that, even from like the mentorship view of like someone looking at it and say, "Hey, like these these are the methods. Here's kind of like figure out which ones work for you. They're not all going to work for you." Not everyone's going to wake up and be able to do this type of thing. But, you know, one of these is going to help you get back into it. So long answer short, I'm getting, I'm writing music again uh, for a choreographer and it's it's exciting. It's scary jumping back into it. Um, But I'm just, I'm pushing through and the method for me that I selected out of that, that tier list Mm -hmm. (laughs) is the, is thinking input based. It's like, stop sweating about, oh, I need two minutes by this time. It's thinking of, of course, breaking it down the smaller chunks, but focusing really hard on like, I'm going to put in that 25 minutes for, mm-hmm. for this. I'm going to put in this amount of time and being less worried about the goal because the, the goal will come from it, but just sitting down and putting in the time, which is yeah. what I'll be doing after this call. So Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good to hear. I mean, it's... It's not comforting to to realize, yeah, no matter when you come back to it, the fear is always going to be there. But on the other hand, it's consistent. It's like, okay, yeah. I know the deal, you know. Can I ask you a question about some marketing? Sure. Because that's, that's like my, that's my love. And one of the things that, you know, many of my clients bring up uh, when it comes to a campaign for something mm-hmm. that they, they've got a concert coming up and they want to figure out, how should I post on Instagram. My first thing is always like, and you wrote it in your book, newsworthiness. Okay. Are you doing this in a way that anybody would like, would be novel? Because most (laughs) of the times everybody's just copying each other, doing the same things, the same ways. What are some like parameters or some, some qualities of something that is newsworthy? When I think about I mean, this is maybe not the answer to this question, because I want to think about someone who's got a uh, performance coming up and they want to get butts in seats. I think about email invitations and social media, you know, reminders and all of that, you know, and the the newsletters that that musicians send out They're They're so often so impersonal and so dry and and just like buy me, buy me, buy me. You know, like, you know, like <laughs> my concerts, like all this stuff, you know, like it just, and it, and what kills me is when you do get something that feels personal and piques your curiosity, it stands out like there's some huge spotlight on it because it's so rare. So I just always, um, if I get something like that, I just put it in a, you know, a, uh, one of my email boxes because I'm just holding on to that because it's mm-hmm. a great example and I want to be able to show other people and write about it. 
So that whole thing about, yeah, it's your concert and you care about it and you have this thing to promote, but if you're in conversation with someone and you're saying, I'm really excited about this and I would love to have you there, right? That, and if, if that comes across as genuine and you talk about what's make, made this concert special and you know what you're looking forward to in terms of seeing them there, all of that stuff, suddenly, again, it's human. So that's the, that's the challenge for all of us because we're all being spammed and um, we're all putting out way more stuff than, yeah. Ever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's loud. Yeah. It's really loud. One of the things that one of my mental frameworks is, is this going to stand the test of time mm. in somebody's mind? Is this going to be memorable? Is this going to move the culture forward? <laughs> and when I think about stuff now, I don't think about just like, American culture. I think about internet culture because internet mm -hmm. culture is the world culture. It's like the first time we've been able to exchange information among humans, regardless of location, right? Instantaneously. And when I think back to really good examples, I think of like Casey Neistat and Jesse Wellens. They've done pieces of content in New York City that really changed the whole game when it comes to the culture of the internet. And so I think oftentimes musicians think too small. Yeah. Like what has never been done before, period. <laughs> and, and an example of that was like when uh, Jesse uh, sat on a boosted board and, mm -hmm. and dressed up like Aladdin <laughs> and, and put a board on put put like like cardboard on top of the boosted board and just hid the remote in his in his hands as he was doing this and he was like riding it like it was uh the magic carpet <laughs> just rode around new york city in case he shot the whole thing and it was it was like aladdin in real life that was like the name of the video or something like that and that's super interesting right that takes imagination so like <laughs> When I talk to people about newsworthiness or when I talk to people mm. about moving the culture forward, I ask them, what's like the thing that nobody's ever done, but people didn't even know they needed, but when they saw it, they needed it. They knew that it was something mm. they wanted. That's the hardest stuff, but I think those moments are what really move the culture and your career forward. And Wow. This reminds me, this reminds <laughs> me of a musician that I was talking with earlier today. Yeah. Um, the, the question was, you know, he's trying to decide the project that he wants to take on. And he, you know, he sort of confessed that, you know, he had a very big project 10 years ago that he got a lot of media attention on. And he's been kind of afraid to, to like go after something big. And in a way, whether it's your music or the promotion, maybe they go together, you want something big that's going to create buzz that is newsworthy and that is groundbreaking in some ways. But it's what you were just saying, Drew, that, that thing of, of thinking small. When we're younger and we kind of don't really know what we're in for or what we're up against, people can be more <laughs> courageous about yeah. these kinds of projects. And then you have some success... And then you're thinking, oh no, what will people think? And 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 you see the the creativity in a way just sort of tamped down. And so one of the things that we talked about was because each of us have has a part of ourselves that is daring, that is more adventurous, that doesn't care what other people think. There's a part of in in all of us, I mean, Carl Jung would call it the shadow, but whatever you mm -hmm. call it, I was asking this this uh, wonderful musician to just imagine that that part of himself and ask, what repertoire, what crazy idea for a concert would that guy want to do? Mm -hmm. And you know, he started thinking about this, and he, you know. He doesn't have the answer yet, but it's like there's a dialogue that's going to happen there. And that part of ourselves, that's what we need to tap into to, to really be leaning into our true potential. And for people just to have a way to, 
you know, like a conversation with their own subconscious. That's where the juice is. Mm-hmm. I love that. I hope you were listening to that faking. Yeah. <laughs> this is this has been super helpful. It's been super invigorating. It's gonna. I'm gonna go eat a whole plate of death cookies after this. <laughs> Um, but I just, Yum. I wanted, <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, but I did, I did want to kind of, uh, wrap this up with a nice little bow and have, uh, one, one final question because most of our listeners, 90% of our listeners are 34 and below. Okay. And in general, the two kind of categories are hardcore classical musician going out there, graduating in school right now, wondering, wait, is there something else out there? Uh, beyond the the ever evaporating academic and or orchestral jobs, like can I do other things? What mm-hmm. is that? And then the other type of persona is someone else who's been doing other things and is coming in to classical m- uh, music. So we're kind of getting hit with this pincer. But what mm-hmm. is is interesting is it is this next generation who's entering the workforce or who's been around there or who's looking up and dreaming. Uh, what if? And so is there any kind of parting words to that type of person, to our listeners who they might not have a full Rolodex of experiences to learn from and draw on yet, um, but they're just looking out, trying to figure out what that next step is. Hmm. What would you say to them? Um, So this whole thing about role models, you know, it's, it, it can be a nice thing if there's someone out there who is doing the thing that you dream of and you can either emulate them or, you know, use something that they've done in a way as a, as a pattern. But we're living in a time when there are not going to be the role models for what's needed in the world. And instead of feeling, you know, really scared by that, there's also an aspect of it that's very freeing. The challenges that we're in for um, politically, culturally, you know, climate-wise, all of this, it needs the creative thinking of artists. So it needs you to be in connection with your unconscious, with your shadow, and to dream bigger. No one is going to say that this is easy, but we really need to be thinking beyond the the parameters that have hemmed too many musicians in. So yeah, I would say go for it. This is your sign. This is the sign you've been waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Thanks again, Angela Beach, for coming through. Where can... Where can people find you? Where should um, they, what's they sure. follow? Sure. AngelaBeaching.com. Um, I have a little weekly um, thing called Monday Bites. And yeah, that would be great for people to sign up. Oh, yeah. When you sign up, you get, what do you get? Um, I have a traction report with a fabulous little map, like a roadmap for, for moving forward on your career. So yeah, that's how to find me. I love it. Thank you so much for your wisdom. We really appreciate you. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Till next time. (laughs) Till next time. (laughs) 